Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to a Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo special. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for the special version of the Roundup, where we investigate the current state of the game following a recent article posted by Alan Zonda. The article, as well as the recent crop of internationals in the autumn and the start of the Six Nations, have certainly got a lot of people talking about where the game is and where it needs to go. I'm delighted to say Alan joins me at one of my guests this evening. Alongside him are Ian Costello and Nick Wood. Gents, would you like to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about you? I'm Alan Zonda. Um... Uh, I started my coaching career in the 1980s at Western Province Rugby Union as coaching director. And uh, in short, I finished uh, my last assignment was with the, with the Bulls um, as director of rugby in January 2020. That's just a, a short version of the 40 years. <laughs> so, yeah, Ian Costello, I'm in my third season coaching at Wasps. Um, I've been five years in the UK, the previous two before that with, uh, with Nottingham Rugby. And, and prior to that, I spent um, six years with Munster Rugby, um, we'll say at a senior capacity, uh, coach a bit of club rugby in between. I was, I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to work full-time in club rugby and then three years on the development pathway with, with Munster Academy and probably worked across... Um, most most areas of the game currently defense and uh, and the kicking game is my uh, my brief of wasps hi I'm, I'm nick wood uh current role is master in charge of rugby at, at a school just outside oxford called radley college i moonlight as an occasional referee um and sometimes uh, people who've been on the naughty step um so the sort of extra layer of discipline and sighting officer in a previous life um I played loose prop for Gloucester uh, from in the Premiership from 2003 until I retired in 2016. Gents, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you for joining the conversation. Uh, before we get going, I'm going to make a suggestion for the listeners that if you haven't read Alan's article, uh, which is linked via the Rugby Coach Weekly website, please stop now uh, and just have a quick kind of read of that before continuing to listen, as it will most definitely help with an understanding of what we're going to talk about. Uh, so, Alan, I'm going to come to you first, if I can. Um, can you just kind of give us a brief introduction on what compelled you to write the article and what you were hoping to achieve by doing so? Um, I, I'm not a controversial type of uh, person. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the, the game at the moment, and it's been coming for quite some time now, um, I actually spoke to one of our... Um, rugby writers in, in South Africa and we were just ch chatting and he said to me but why don't you put it on paper what you're telling me now so I said okay I'll do that I, I don't actually like doing it but I'll do it so uh, I just feel that uh, that we really have to do something about the game uh, everybody involved in the game should try and and see where we can improve uh, the state of the of the current current game so by writing the article and making some suggestions, I just wanted to actually get people talking about it more than saying this is the right way to go. 
Um, so uh, um, there's been a lot of uh, reaction after the articles and, and I must say quite a lot of positive uh, uh, reports back from people. Um, and I think a lot of uh, coaches that I know feel the same way. Um, but it's as if nothing's really being done to fix it. And I know rugby's always been uh, slow to, to make changes to, to, to specifically the laws and that. And I understand that. But, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're running a business, uh, your own business, and you know you're doing something wrong and you're losing money, you, you're really going to make plans to stop losing money to, to go bankrupt. So I don't know why we don't follow the same principle in rugby. Oh, I think that's a great, yeah, it's a great starting point. So I guess that, that kind of leads on to my first plan question. Um, and this, this kind of cropped up in a conversation or an interview with Richard Cockrell quite recently, where um, I think the, the, the comment or the question was, um, you know, is rugby an entertainment product? And his answer was, was a pretty resounding no. Um, I think his his quote was actually, if you, you want to be entertained, go to the theatre. So I, I guess I'd ask that to, to all three of you um, as a start, because I think it, it maybe kind of defines potentially where some of the rest of the discussion will go, that if if we maybe do see it as an entertainment product, then what are we going to do about it? If it's just about winning, then what are the kind of the implications and the realities of that on on the game? So open question, anyone welcome to kind of jump in and, and give us their thoughts on is, is rugby an entertainment product or should it be or not? Well, um, I, saw, I, saw, I saw that, uh, that quote uh, that he sent, I think it was on Twitter, um, I actually, I, I, I agree with him to a certain extent. Um, you know, the professional game, and if, you if you've been involved in rugby at the, at the top level, uh, your job's always on the line and you have to, you are appointed to win matches. And I fully understand that. But I still think there, there is another way to play this game to win matches. And uh, what frustrates me the most at the moment is that I don't see a lot of teams doing something different. Everybody's sort of doing the same thing. And they're just hoping that by doing the same thing, maybe a bit better, they will win matches and win the league. Um, and I always, you know, when I talk to coaches, I always say to them, you know, if you play in, in a league like, say, the top 14 in France or the Premiership, um, only one team's going to win that competition. And uh, if we all play exactly the same rugby, and I, I end up number 14, and I've, I've played a type of game where my players haven't really improved, and I haven't tried to be creative or tried to do something different to win matches, then what have I really done? Uh, and that's the, that's the way I see it. Yeah, fair. Alan, like there's a lot of those points. I can see exactly where you're coming from. And I think um, uh, there certainly is, I think you used the expression cut and paste, a lot of cut and paste in terms of copycat coaching and trying to follow what other teams are doing. And, you know, realistically, you can only ever be second best, I suppose, if you're following somebody else. And I think if we look to the Southern Hemisphere uh, and they're so transparent, especially... Uh, the Kiwis are very so transparent and open with sharing ideas because they're so confident 
in the knowledge that they'll have moved that on by the time you even come to, to, to grips with it. And having done a bit of CPD um, uh, for a few weeks, uh, a couple of years ago in New Zealand, that really struck me how secure and confident that they were in their own ability to keep progressing uh, their coaching. Um, so uh, I definitely think that's a really valid point. There are a few, I suppose this week is quite relevant for me in that um, uh, we're preparing to play Bristol, for example, and, and Bristol play the game very, very differently in a very unique way. And I suppose, you know, from what you're talking about, it's, it's probably um, a positive to see somebody on top of the premiership playing the game that way that is slightly differently um, than anybody else because that ticks the box in terms of creativity and innovation. As a defence coach, I'll be honest, it's very engaging and exciting to prepare to defend against them. And, and there's a little bit of a buzz this week because it is different. Uh, and then you look across and you see, you know, your son's involved with Toulouse and, and they play the game in such a unique fashion and it's such a clear DNA in how they play. Um, and even to a certain degree, I think Exeter probably led the way and probably still are. They're going through a little bit of a dip at the moment and they tried to play the game differently. Uh, I know they're renowned for picking goals, etc., and their set-piece game, but actually the, with the ball, their possession and the way they play, they're very difficult to play against. Um, so there are, I suppose, green shoots and there are exceptions and, and, Hopefully they're the ones that lead the way, but I certainly agree with what you're saying and it's trying to look maybe for for the innovators and, and people that are leading the way in the game at the moment. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, some people that they say that I want to play, um, I always want to try and play uh, an attacking style of rugby. But for, for me, the game consists of all the facets of play. And it's when you use a certain aspect of play to have success and uh, not just to use the same thing over and over and over again. And I'm not against uh, doing pick and goes and I'm not against doing box kicks. It's, uh, it's, if you do it at the right time and it's working, then they do what's working for you. So I'm not against that. I just feel that... Uh, I think we need a bit more creativity, and I'm seeing a lot of that now. Um, I don't know if it's happened in the Premiership, because we see the Premiership matches here. Uh, maybe they've got a bit more freedom because nobody's going to go down to, uh, uh, to the Championship. I think it's the Championship below. And maybe because of that, there's a bit of, more bit of uh, uh, no scared to play attitude now. And we're seeing unbelievable rugby. Um, so maybe this will help teams to, to realize that there are times when you can really play and there are times where you have to close the game down um, uh, to, to win the match. And I'm not against that at all. Um, but in your case, Ian, uh, I think defense has improved so much over the years uh, that it's surpassed... Uh, the attacking side of the game. And I think a lot of coaches just say to themselves, oh, you know, we can't really do anything against this team, specific team, because the defense is too good. And for me as a coach, that's always been my challenge to say, how the hell am I going to mess up the defense? Um, and not just sit back and say, okay, no, no, it's not going to work for us. 
so that that's a challenge on the attacking side to to see if we can uh, uh, beat the defence and score tries. You know, in the end, I don't think um, I, the money side of things is not something we can really skirt over, is it? I, I think that, and Alan, you well, you mentioned the lack of relegation this year. I mean, that is important, and there are probably two sides to the coin: is that the games that I've either been a part of in some way or or watched is you either get a sense, and part of this might be down to the fact there's no crowd, but you either get a sense that there's nothing, nothing, nothing really riding on it, or you get a sense that, as you say, teams go, well, you know, there is no fear of going down, therefore we'll actually try that risky play. We'll try and be a bit more creative. Yeah. But I think with the money side of things, it is, I don't agree with Cockers necessarily, but he's onto something in the sense that it's such a huge part of the game and people's livelihoods are at stake and players' contracts. And I think, something like Bristol and Ian, I don't want to speak out of turn about Wasps, but um, you get the impression that teams, you know, Wasps and Bristol are two sort of very effective attacking teams. The reason the players buy into it is because they, they feel empowered to take that risk. They don't feel their contracts on the line if they were to, to pick the riskier option, not just go through the safe play. Um, and that then, that is allowed, that's effective because at some point higher up the chain, someone within the coaching staff or even beyond the coaching staff on the managerial side has taken the responsibility on their shoulders to go, right, the buck stops with me. I'm going to empower my coaching team, my, my players, you know, to fulfil their vision. I'm not going to put their jobs under short-term pressure based on the risks that the, the players take on the field. Nick, how much was that a reality as, as a player? Were you always conscious of that? within the playing group? Is that something that would have been actively discussed in terms of, you know, we, we've got to, if you're in a slump, win games, otherwise, you know, we're not going to get contracts renewed or we, we've got to make sure we are winning to to keep our jobs. Is, is that something you guys almost live with on a day-to-day or is it kind of just sits below the surface, everyone's aware of it, but it's not really spoken about? I think it's more tacit than open. So it's, you get a sense. You get a sense from the, the, how how coaches will respond and either manage pressure themselves or they'll they'll pass it on deliberately, subconsciously, but can pass it on to the playing group. Um, and one of the benefits of being at the same club for such a long time is you see various different um, coaching groups and, and their attitudes, and you can tell the difference from those that um, that are guilty of it and those that are sort of actually willing to take the responsibility or or feel they can take the responsibility, which is just as important. And they've equally been, been coaches who have had one attitude at the start and then when there's been pressure applied, their attitude has changed accordingly. Um, and ultimately, I think that it is a financial game, yes, but at some point, you know, to get the best out of the playing group, they've got to be able to go out there and put their bodies on the line and take risks. And to do that, they need to feel some degree of security, not completely without responsibility. Yeah. Um, that's just not, that's not reality but they have to feel they're empowered to go out there. And, and that does come from the lack of short-term pressure, if that makes sense. I think, um, yeah, and Nick, uh, just maybe picking up on two things in, in reverse order, the relegation, first of all, there was a really interesting article from France that you guys might have picked up in the last couple of days talking about how competitive the three leagues are now in France and because of relegation and promotion and and the president that was interviewed said there'd be nobody watching our matches from February onwards if there wasn't relegation. And we fill up our stadium in February, March, April. And this was from a team who were pretty much favourites for relegation and just said, no, this is what makes it so competitive at the moment. And every Pro D2 team has to have an academy and 
30 teams are involved in decision making and and I certainly think in England at the moment having worked in the championship and now in the premiership there is a very considerable disconnect and you know so that relegation promotion relegation argument is very much twofold I can see both sides of the argument um, around the freedom to play versus uh, the competitiveness, the product, growing the game, etc. And BT do a pretty good job on that, obviously. Um, but I was probably more interested in what Nick talked around coaching and the environment, um, culture, call it whatever you want, around who you are, what your identity is, what your DNA is. Um, and Nick, you're dead right. You know, like, you know, Lee Black is, is very much a, a, a very positive coach, very much an attacking mindset both sides of the ball. So attacking with the ball, attacking without the ball. And it does filter down tacitly or, or even quite quite tangibly in, in terms of um, if a 4v2 is on in this part of the field, we take that all the time, all the time. Context uh, is irrelevant at that point. This is the type of team that we are. And I think as coaches, and maybe this is the way this conversation is going to go, Alan, and not of the point you wrote about is I feel as a coach or coaches in general, we have a huge responsibility to, for us to play the type of game and coach the type of game that, that we believe in and that we love. And I think that's a, a really interesting coaching challenge going forward. How do we balance winning um, the pragmatic side of the game with the entertainment side of the game, with the true spirit of the game and how we believe it should be played? And I think that's a, that's a really exciting challenge for coaches going forward. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Do we think if... Oh, gone. Sorry. There's a happy medium, isn't there, Ian? There's that. It's, it's the, the nirvana of, you know, you, you have the relegation, and I fully agree that it always adds a, a level of spice to things. Um, people are playing for, you know, clubs are playing for their livelihood. You are playing for prestige. You know, there's a huge, huge momentous event in a club's history if it, it gets relegated or promoted. Um, and it, it is the nirvana of can you still play the brand of rugby that you believe in and back yourself as a coach or a coaching group and back your players to deliver success more often than not. Uh, and, you know, and again, again, this is where we can't ever separate the money from it. To do that as a group of coaches, I believe you have to have the support from your CEO, from your owners, the money behind it. Definitely, yeah. Alan, I, th I thought the point you made around, you know, the... <laughs> I guess maybe the excuse that some people come up with around the numbers on the field or the field being too small and those types of things. And it made me think back to the autumn and there was, there was a pretty widespread criticism, I guess, of the, the autumn nations cup and some of the rugby that was kind of happening around that time. And, and the, the most recent tweak of, of the premiership and no relegation has, has changed the mindset. But I do wonder until maybe the last month or so, do we think, rugby was was in that kind of defensive cycle which it, it tends to kind of go through over any number of years where defenses will get better and better and better and then it will kind of get to a sea change and there'll be some sort of law change or, or you know intent or something else will happen and then attack becomes prominent and I just wonder if that was kind of the tipping point um, and, and what your guys thoughts were on are we always just going to see these cycles or actually is is there something we can do to make a longer lasting change to the the product i guess and the actual the, the kind of the intent within the play that we see yeah i i really think there are certain laws that we can uh 
change to 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 make the game better. Um, I, I I get the feeling that there are some of the laws being refereed in a certain way at the moment that it benefits um, players to actually make bad decisions on the field. And it actually benefits them more than players that make good decisions on the field. Um, you know, the one, the, one, the one law that really, really needs, uh, needs to be uh, looked at seriously, I mean, we had a few games this weekend uh, or from the weekend till last night in, uh, I don't know what we, some provincial competition that the Sharks and everybody's playing in. And, and, and teams are winning the matches in the end because of penalties and kicking for touch and having a mall, getting another penalty, kicking for touch, getting another mall, till they finally get into the 22 and you finally see a player being sent off with a yellow card sometimes a penalty try and a try. So, so the laws in such a way, specifically with the penalty and then kicking for touch going downfield, you can work your way up, up the field right to the other side, but by just calling them all every time. And uh, I watch the referees and I actually can't count to 10 seconds and the arms out for a penalty. So, you know, something's wrong there if, if, uh, if you can play that way and actually use the laws to, to win a game just doing that. And that worries me that those things are not looked at. You know, uh, when, when I was still playing rugby, uh, if you kick for touch from a penalty, it wasn't your ball. It was the opposition ball. So you kick the ball downfield to get territory and maybe put them under pressure in their line out. And uh, I feel if they just change that, that you can't kick for touch downfield from a penalty, and it's, then it's not your line out. If they just change that small little thing, it will it will make a big difference in the in the game. And then of course there are things in the mall that's also I don't know how do the referees in the World Rugby how do they want you to stop a mall legally. Have they got have they got some answers for us as coaches? <laughs> because everybody's being penalized all the time, you know. So it just doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't make sense to me. You, you've just mentioned my two mortal enemies, Alan, as a defense coach. Um, penalties and kicks to touches and repeated mauls. And uh, as a former back, not having a clue unless it's unbelievably obvious why we've been penalised and not having a, anywhere near enough appreciation of dark arts. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sitting on your side of the fence on that one. You know, um, you know, yeah, sorry. But, but, you know, you take something like, uh, um, uh, and I've seen this quite a few times in, in matches, someone's attacking down the left side in the 15 metre and they put a grubber through, nice little grubber, and the fullback comes across to defend. He dives onto the ball, stands up, and then three players get hold of him. And nine out of ten times, one of those or those three players that are actually in charge of that situation are penalized for something. Either diving on the man or holding him too long or not releasing or... I don't know how that works because for me... 
if I'm a referee and there's one player and three players attacking him, if I just look at that situation, I must say to myself that the player that retrieved the ball is in trouble. He's not going to get out of this, but then he gets the benefit of the call. And that doesn't make sense to me. You know, those small things. Yeah, I think, Alan, one of the just, I suppose, very topical at the moment from, from our point of view is after lockdown, the last lockdown, um, we, we, ha- we were able to witness in the Southern Hemisphere the change of interpretation around the breakdown and how the jackler, once he was showing a lifting action, was getting very immediate penalties. And we had an opportunity as a coaching group to spend a lot of time discussing and preparing for that. So if we kind of think about the, the practical side of any law change or any law interpretation, um, we had plenty of advance warning on that and we actually managed to watch a couple of games. And we felt as a coaching group and as a club that worked with the profile of team we had, like, like having Jack Willis, for example, would be a massive advantage in that area. But we felt that we hit the ground running on that and we were able to adapt to that in a positive way and like any game, the idea is to beat the, you know, beat the laws, beat the rules, et cetera, to win the game. And we felt on that one, yeah, okay, we've gotten ourselves a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah. And then abruptly, not abruptly, but then quite, quite suddenly, I suppose, is uh, things changed and those rights were no longer available for the jackaler. So, for example, um, it became not rolling away, became the the A in the criteria of what referees looked at. So as a coaching group, as players, we struggled and we're putting an awful lot of attention now and focus on that instead of maybe other areas of the game where we could be more creative, innovative, moving the game forward. That would have taken up a lot of our our time and intention. And just one thing to point out, I think that's really, really important with any of those law interpretations is unintended consequences so for example the first one which was all about safety the jackaler writes brilliant all about safety but what happened we were afraid to play in our own half because anytime you had possession you had a far greater chance of losing the ball so the unintended consequence was now there was an awful lot more kicking in the game so by changing one thing it needs to be thought through to completion safety should always be paramount so the current i feel like the the, the current uh, interpretations and, and very clear guidelines around contact with the head are very positive. But it's making sure we've taught everything, thought about it true to completion so there aren't any unintended consequences that the game struggles to deal with. And I felt that particular one, it ended up in very little uh, innovation in your own half because you just wanted to make sure you didn't give away a penalty. And yeah. by putting pressure on the opposition, you were more likely to get penalties in their half. And that was literally, I think, how people adapted to it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's been happening uh, over the years. Uh, uh, every time that they change the law or they uh, change the interpretation, the way they're going to referee it, uh, we as coaches had, had to adapt to those uh, situations. Otherwise... Uh, you, you couldn't actually progress with your with your team, um, so it, it, it's a difficult part of the game to uh, to 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 uh, to fix in, in that way. You mentioned um, you mentioned your article, Alan, actually about uh, the the collaborative process between player, coach, and referee. Um, I think now with the referees' hat on, uh, 
Well, firstly, on Ian's point, actually, about the, the no tolerance with contact to the head, I think that's one of the law changes or interpretations that should, if it, you know, there's all this talk about the players are bought into the process, and you're still seeing a flurry of red cards on most weekends. And no one's talking about they meant to do it. That's irrelevant. You're trying to change player behaviour. You're trying to make the game safer. But hopefully on the theme of law, uh, law of unintended consequences is that as players are forced by law to tackle lower and lower, that suddenly the offload game for all teams becomes far more viable. We start to see more ball in play. We start to see more broken field situations. Um, and just on the, the, the turnover thing, I think... Is always you introduce a new interpretation and you start at one extreme, don't you? So you saw with the when Super Rugby restarted after the first lockdown that turnovers were given instantly, and now it's kind of it has gone back a little bit towards what it used to be. I still think it's a happy medium between the two. I still think there's a greater chance of an organic turnover than having to resort to a penalty or having to wait for being smashed by three blokes or, or three women until you get rewarded. The law of unintended consequences on that one is on the breakdown, is that a player comes in and he's pulls at the ball, but there are still two players lying on the wrong side of the tackle. And the referee's going, well, what am I supposed to do here? To be fair to both teams, you've got rights to the ball, but those two guys aren't supposed to be there. Yeah. Now, hopefully the way it's applied, if you are in that situation where you've got one attacker versus three defenders and the ball carrier is completely isolated, then the two guys on the wrong side are irrelevant. They've had no bearing on the game. Um. But I think that that sort of symbiotic process that I know we go into it and go, right, these are the laws. Sometimes you can't predict the unintended consequences and you've got to go, you've got to accept there's, that everyone's feeling their way. And as long as we all understand that we're working to, these are, yes, they're to improve safety, but they are to improve the game as, as a whole, as a spectacle, that hopefully we kind of, everyone buys into that sort of ongoing process that's not going to be fixed in any one decision. No. Do you think there's a need there for teams to be a little bit more comfortable with losing the ball. So a number of the red cards I would see from the breakdown seem to be players that just go, unless I kind of missile myself into this breakdown with pretty much zero control or, or a very low percentage of control, we're going to lose the ball. And and it's almost just that absolute desperation um, to, to make that clear out no matter what. And I would, I, I presume, you know, they are, competitive animals we absolutely understand that but I, I can't imagine that's a natural behavior I would I would think that I have not played at professional level or been coached by professional coaches is, is that a conditioned behavior that you know they are being told from whatever point on that journey through we just have to make sure we win the ball and, and actually if the change is a little bit we'd rather keep 15 on the field and concede a couple of turnovers ahead of you desperately try and clear that guy, end up getting the red card because you've hit him in the head, and then we're going to concede more turnovers because we've got 14. Um, what what are you guys thinking around that? I think, um, Phil, you know, for quite a while now, especially around attacking breakdown, um, there's been a lot of issues around control, leading with the shoulder, contact with the head, but mostly around I, th I think around control, being in control of your own body. Um, and what's very clear for us now is once the arm is tucked, you're leaving yourself open to be in big trouble. So from a coaching point of view, where we're trying to change behavior is always show hands, um, always control your pace going into it. And if you're unsure, like you said, you may just have to accept you take that one, you take a loss uh, at, at that particular one. Um, I think that and 
the thing, Nick, you, in terms of the tackle, I think that if we are lowering the tackle height, um, we need to get rid of latching. We need to get if if we need to get rid of slinging people into contact because it changes the point of impact. Um, I think we need to distinguish between you know Ollie Thorley last week where he's got an upright collision versus somebody who who yes the outcome is the same contact with the head but they're two very different rugby incidents and I think either we have to get rid of double tackles because you can't tackle two people low that will end up with again unintended consequences where like in the championship I believe when they went below nipple height for the tackle area again there was there was a knock-on effect to concussions we either need to get rid of maybe and or latching uh, especially pre-latching and double tackles because I would coach double tackles as one to be low and one to be on the ball. But if someone dips, like for example, in a game, it happened to us against Leicester where the ball carrier was quite horizontal and our second tackler made contact with the head and his arm was tucked. Um, and it's a straight red card now. So something we still got to tidy up a few little bits there. Cause I think everyone agrees it's for the right reasons and it's about changing behavior. But as coaches, we're trying to look at the technical points. So, for example, showing the hands, that's something simple. Control of your own body, being careful in terms of double tackles, that there's room to make the tackle. I know from a practical point of view, that's what we're trying to do at the moment to avoid those situations, Phil, where we end up at 14 on the pitch. The players have to be confident that, as you say, it was at this point on the hands up, if they operate within the framework of the law, they have to trust that whatever the outcome, there will be a, me a measure of prote uh, protection for them. But as soon as they step out uh, of that, that framework, then there's no protection. So this is, this is the line now that the referees have taken. Which, uh, which, and, and rightly so, I think it makes it makes things so much simpler. So we will do our best to apply mitigation if you do your best to do everything that is a legal act, which might unfortunately end up with an illegal collision. But if you tuck your shoulder, I know the incident that you're referring to, if you tuck, and he'd been warned in the game already, hadn't he? So if, if you tuck your shoulder and something like that happens, you can't expect any protection from the law. Um, I think there's still a way to avoid that. And when you talk about the championship law trials, law trials I think there's a way to avoid the forcing both tacklers to go low, because you're right, there is an inherent risk with that. But I think you say, well, there's, you can still have one low and one higher. And as long as that higher tackle has made some, tackler has made some attempt to bend at the, at the hips, He's not stood bolt upright trying to latch onto the ball. He's actually doing it, but you know he's, he's at that angle rather than there. Then you can say, well, he has made an attempt to bend. Then we now we can apply mitigation. And if the ball carrier is dropping in height, then we can say, well, now this is much more on the scale of a rugby incident than an act of foul play. But this is the process of everyone trying to work it out. And um, similar to the, you know, the arguments around and the games got worse because of defence, because of lineouts, because of scrums. Everything's collapsing. There's a danger that we compare to some some halcyon days in the past that didn't actually exist. They're just the rose tinted you know, spectacles that we've all got in hindsight. Um, I think we just need to accept that, accept that we are in a period of transition. We are in a state of flux, and hopefully, as long as all three of those areas, so players, coaches, and referees, are on the same wavelength and trying to improve the sport, then you've got to trust that things are going to go and end up in the right place. Yeah, that's a great point, Nick. One, one other thing, Alan, that you, you did kind of talk about a number of times in the, in the bullet points you outlined is the, the use of data and the kind of percentage play and I guess almost the, the nature of the game being played without the ball. And it, it might have shifted 
a little bit recently, but I, I think it was Eddie Jones was talking about that the data for international rugby would suggest, you know, you can, you can, the teams that win are the teams that have the ball the least. Um, so I'd just be interested to kind of just steer the conversation that way a little bit and get, and get your guys thoughts on is, is there too much data? Are, are we being led too much by analysis and trends and, um, and those types of things and actually what's the I guess maybe looking at some solutions to how we shift the game to being one where you win by having the ball and, and scoring tries rather than um, just playing territory or just trying to put the other team under pressure by by kicking or whatever means yeah I think uh, I think for what, what, what I'm trying to say I don't we, we need uh, we, we need that part of the game and we need to know what's going on and that's why we, uh, we have all the statistics that we can get and we do the analysis. So I, that's all fine with me. But, you know, if uh, I always try and explain to people, if I'm running a 5K every morning, I go out my house, I go and do my 5K run and I do it in 20 minutes. And I do that for a week, then my, then my, uh, my stat is five minutes per kilometer or something or four minutes per kilometer if I go for 5k run. So I'm, I'm make, I make my own stat. So the stats that we're seeing today in the rugby, we've got those stats because this is the way the game is being played at the moment. And I know even in South Africa, uh, you know, they were saying at one stage that the team that kicks the most will win the game. Now, if you just say if you just say that to a normal coach that's at a school, then he has to go and say to his players at halftime, "Listen, we are ten points behind. We have to start kicking now to win this game." And that doesn't make sense to me. But but we are creating our own stats. So I think that we must challenge those stats and say that we want to change it. So if you play in a different way, the stats will be different. So the, the stats should be there to be challenged, not there to say, this is how we should do it now. Uh, that's, that's, that's the only way I, I, I try to explain it, but it's, it's, it's quite difficult for me to explain it. But, uh, but that's the way I, I, I feel about that. Um, why don't we say, okay, this is the current stat for kicking or tackling or defense or uh, we only play the ball, the ball is only alive for 20, 20 minutes, then why don't we do something to change it? That's why I think we should use the stats. Yeah, Alan, um, I think that's um, like the, the word that springs to mind there is context. And um, as kind of part of my midlife crisis, I've decided to do kind of a, a little bit of research and a little bit of study um, after 22 years of not opening a, a book pretty much. And one of the things I've looked at is, is coaches' decision-making. And it's kind of my main area of interest and, and how data informs decision-making is a part of that. And, uh, you know, the, the tongue twister that not everything that you, that, that you can measure matters and vice, and vice versa, I think, there's a real skill and an art to interpreting um, what data is relevant and not drowning in the sea of data because there is so much out there. It is ridiculous, yeah. you know, yeah. and there is a real skill as a coach to, to filter through that and pull out what's important. But the thing that I meant around context was just use an example, the team that kicks the most wins. Okay. So 
uh, the All Blacks kicking the ball 27, 28 times, South Africa kicking the ball 27, 28 times. They're two different things completely. Because if you have to look at the context and the All Blacks kick to get the ball back, short kicks, attacking kicks, um, I had the pleasure of watching them train once and they invested in a crossfield kick early in the game, got together and just said, who's marking who, who's got what, what space. And their kicking game was based around finding the best way to attack space. Yeah. The South African game is much more attritional. So you have to, and that is the danger. You take, you take a, nugget, a little bit of information and you apply it in your own context that is completely different. Yeah. And I, I think, without getting too deep into it, that's a real coach education um, uh, viewpoint in that we need to be able to you know, critically think about these things. We need to be able to make informed decisions and actually stop and reflect on them and see, are we headed in the right direction? Is that a real important stat? Are we interpreting in the right way? And more importantly, does it apply, apply to my team my situation in my own context. I always found a stat was only ever a reason to drop someone, never to pick someone. I think, uh, actually, Alan, I had a coach, and I'm not going to name him, that would be unprofessional, who used that exact line, the team that kicks the most wins, and he put a figure on it, 65% of the time. And what was the manifestation? Now, he may have been right, but with, by failing to provide context or how he wanted us to kick or what the opportunities or what kind of kick you, you would use in a certain situation, you know, you end up with a mindset that, well, I've got to kick the ball. I've got to, I've got the ball. I've got to kick it away. Yeah. And go back to Ian's earlier point about if Walsh see a four on two, they're back to take that four on two and to break it down however they see fit. You know, it would get to a stage where we would see a four on two and decide the best option for in front of us is to kick the ball away. Yeah. Not to regather, not to regather. Were um, you like to so, kick within that, Nick? Was I once got told by Dean Ryan that if I ever kick the ball again, that was the last time I would effing play for the team. So there's your answer. That's it. It's devastating, isn't it? Yeah, we've got to kick loads, but we're going to tell some players that they're not allowed to kick. So yeah, that is just yeah, didn't give my cultured left boot any any credit. Um, and and just in terms of um, stats and data, for me, it's more a question of what do you use it for. So. There's so much information available, but really it has to be around uh, a probability of being successful or a probability of, of winning. Or for me, the most, the most powerful way of using data or stats is to change behavior. So, for example, I've seen it done really well when it's, it's habits and efforts that are measured because they have such a bearing on team culture, what you highlight as a positive attribute, as a trait within your team even to the point that we use that type of information in training. So you're trying to put something in lights or highlight a particular behavior that everyone aspires to. And sometimes for me, it sounds really simple, but that's a great way to use information and data. Yeah, let the, the performance team worry about load, worry about GPS, et cetera. Whereas we want to uh, inspire or create an environment where these type of behaviors are promoted and sometimes using data or simple little figures can really achieve that. And I think that's something that maybe people don't consider often enough. And that's back to the, to the, the coach's decision-making and how he chooses to use information. You know, in the, um, I know that uh, you guys that work with the defense, you, uh, you have stats for, 
uh, tackle assists and all those things in the defense. But I don't really see them having the detail on, on the attacking side that I would like to use as a coach. For example, um, they can't tell me how many players were, were in the wrong position before he received the ball, for example. Um, because that makes a big difference in how that player is going to react on the situation in front of him. If he's, if he's, too, if he's too flat, he's going to be, to be caught with, when he receives the ball. If, if he doesn't have the space uh, to, 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 to be able to play with that, to do something with that ball or to make the right decision, the time and the space, it's not going to work. And they, they, they never, I mean, I spent the last 15 months uh, at the Bulls and I must say it was the first time in a long time that I actually went back to the top professional game. And uh, I couldn't get that type of information out of, the, out of my coaches. And uh, they, 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 they will take the stats of things that are easy to code and easy to analyze. But they can't tell me who, who was in the wrong position. Uh, did that player make the right decision with the ball in hand? Did he go into contact co correctly? Why, 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 why wasn't the ball coming out fast enough? Uh, was the ball carrier in charge of that uh, attack zone or not? And those things they don't seem to be able to, to give. And for me, if you can improve that, uh, it will improve your team uh, playing with the ball. I, I had the privilege of, uh, you always learn from players when you coach players, and I had the privilege of coaching uh, Tim Oren at Saracens. Uh, and he was at, towards the end of his career, and he taught me, me as a coach, he taught me something about using the space in front of him. Because a lot of people talk about um, playing in the face of the opposition. But he taught me uh, the way he played. He, he showed me how to play in the space in the face. So what Tim used to do, um, he always made sure that he had time on the ball, depending on what the defense was doing in front of him. And uh, I said to him one day, it looks as if you've got an airbag in front of you. So if the defense was away from him, he would be go to the defense. If the, the fence was on top of him, he would actually make his own space to be able to do something with the ball, either beat the player, get the ball away, use his feet or whatever. And, and that taught me as a coach, taught me something um, that, that I've been using over the years in my coaching as well, to teach players that uh, how to work with the, with the pressure in front of you. Um, to be able to keep the ball alive or just to be in charge of the, of the tackle situation um, by doing that the correct way. I wonder if, if that just leads to some of those skills maybe missing now as, as attack moved and focused on kind of other things when I think it was the stat, is it 97 or 98% of your game is spent without the ball? So, you know what I mean? That, that's staggering, isn't it? You, you get very few opportunities actually with the ball, but a lot of, I guess, and again, I, I'm kind of guessing I've seen a bits of professional trainings, but a lot of stuff would be what you're doing on the ball. But actually, I, I know, I think Nick Evans was the first, uh, a job title only tells you so much, but he was the kind of first off the ball coach that, that had kind of come about. And I, 
I don't know. Obviously, the Harlequins is a fascinating one with the with the recent coaching change, and suddenly the the players now seem to be, I guess, kind of maybe owning that and leading that a little bit more and playing with a, a different kind of mindset. But uh, just actually, do we need to put a bigger focus on that from a coaching perspective, with a view to the attack overtaking the defence and and kind of shifting it back or kind of readdressing the balance? Yeah, no, I, sorry, I was well, just going to. I was going yeah. to give like a little sort of a. Uh, reasonably recent, I suppose, so it's five years ago now, but um, the, the playing viewpoint on that. So, yeah, as an individual, you're going to spend 98% of your time without the ball in a game. But I think a lot of it comes down to the training. Are you going to train like you're going to spend 98% of the time without the ball? Because in that 2% of the time you do touch the ball, well, you're not going to get the best out of you. You're not going to offer the best to the team because you haven't, you're not, you haven't had you know, numerous opportunities Um to make that skill instinctive, to be very comfortable making decisions in those moments that you get the chance to do it. So I think if you train that you're going to get the ball 50% of the time or even greater, then they're not unrelated, are they? So the more you train, the more each player trains like they're going to spend lots of time on the ball, the skill level goes up. Okay, and then those opportunities, the decision-making in those tight aspects of the game improves, not just with your fly half, your centre or your fullback, it improves from 1 to 15 or 1 to 23. Yeah. I, I once, um, I think it was about five, six years ago, I had to give a, a lecture at a, conf a coaching conference and uh, I wanted to talk about a bit about the attack game. And I took a lot of uh, games at that time being played in South Africa to see what the teams were doing on the field. And this, this is when I came across that 80% uh, of, uh, of the games were played in a two-pass game. And the other thing I started realizing, if I, you know, looking at the same teams all the time, I found a lot of the teams in South Africa, and I'm talking about the Sharks and the Stormers and the Bulls, uh, where I, I couldn't, I, I found that a lot of the players never passed the ball. Never. In a space of two years, three years, never. He went onto a field to play. He never passed the ball. And some of the teams only had nine out of their 15 players that made a pass in two, three years. The others never made a pass. So if that player, and, that, and Ian would love that if he knew those stats, maybe he knows that, that uh, Nick never passed the ball in the last three years. So why would he pass it tomorrow when we play against him? So we can double it, <laughs> Nick, in the match. And uh, that was astonishing to me to to actually see how many players actually never pass a ball. And, uh, um, and, and the teams were playing, 80% of the teams, their, their, their full match was in the end, it was uh, a one or two pass game. The ball never went three passes, four passes even to play. And uh, if, you, if you play like that, I just feel if you play like that, you make it easy for the defense coach because he knows you're not going to really take a chance for the ball. So it's easier, much easier for the defence. I do wonder if that's where, I, I hate to kind of always, I think everyone does it. You talk about New Zealand at, at just this kind of, they've got all the answers and, and you know, they're, they're just so many levels above everybody else. But I think when it comes to some things, it probably is true. And I, I mean, anyone that watched the Crusaders game at the weekend with Cody Taylor, where you just go, like, the guy looks like he's a centre. 
Like if if you just watch the clips without the numbers on the back, you are not picking him as a hooker, are you? Um, and I, I I would just from an observational point, I think I guess Northern Hemisphere, we've probably I definitely think we've got a long way to go to catch up, but there are a lot more front row players now that would be in that kind of mould. Um, you know, in terms of those catch pass skills and those evasion skills. And um, Ian, I'd be interested in your take on them. Um, Barbary at Watson and kind of, you know, he's a hooker, is he a back row, is he a centre? Uh, he, he seems to kind of change his mind in every interview he gives, but are both the players of the future where we're just going, it doesn't really matter. If you're going to be a hooker, clearly you've got to be able to throw, but outside of your set piece, we just want you to be on the ball and doing, you know, impactful things. Yeah, he's a great case study. That's a really good example. Um, and we're sure he's not a centre. He's not sure, but we're sure. Uh, whether he's a hooker or a back row, oh, we, we just don't know at this point. You know, he, he, he practices throwing as if he's, if he's looking to aspire to be an international class hooker. He's playing like a back row at the moment that looks like potentially if his body, was, you know, from a development point of view, was able for it, he's got the skill set to play international rugby. Um, but, you know, that has to be proven over time. But you're right in terms of being comfortable on the ball. And Nick, he would have been encouraged to kick when he was younger. He still fancies himself and backs himself. And he's he's put a left footer in earlier in the season that got a very fortunate bounce that Josh Bassett picked up. But uh, unfortunately, that's encouraged him to, to go again. But no, on, on a serious note, though, this is where... From my point of view, I just think that that's the challenge as coaches. Um, again, look, I'm referencing Bristol just because they're, they're the freshest in my mind. But when we've analysed them, we have to respect the fact that all the front five forwards are very comfortable on the ball. They play in a system that demands it. And they don't. the system will be exactly how they train. It is a very particular uh, rigid system, but then they've loads of freedom within that. And... and they train like that. You can be certain they train with that with how comfortable they are on the ball. I can tell you that we spend, you know, a huge amount of time up, uh, practicing our transition and our training is very chaotic, very unstructured because that's where the game is at and that's the way we want to play the game. And as a result, in training, people make more decisions. They work off the ball more often. Um, and, and we probably if I'm honest, we highlight a lot of that work because in our hierarchy of how the game should be played, in our view, we hold that, you know, at a higher level. And I just think you're a product of, of, of how you train and how you prepare. And you need to be really clear on what your identity is, really clear on how you want to play the game and how you want to win. So, you know, winning, obviously very important, but I think how you win is very, very important as well. Um, and yes, the All Blacks are the are you know the ones that are always held up there in the highest regard for 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 good reason, but that's the challenge um, as coaches and as a coaching group that if that's the way we want to play the game, we got to create an environment where players thrive practicing that and are encouraged to do that day in day out. Do do we think and just in in terms of solutions, I'm just conscious of time as well, but in terms of moving this forward, we we kind of talked about in laws and said there's unintended consequences, but but in in principle there are there could be some good law adjustments or changes that promote more positive play. Um, we've said kind of the stats are contextual and actually don't necessarily prove anything is right or wrong. The, the context is is pretty key around them. So, I, I, does that come back to your point, Ian? There that ultimately it's about intent and attitude and and 
more maybe that the sea change will come if more coaches or more players or more clubs say we want to be more positive more adventurous more creative I mean there's any number of words you could use in our mindset of how we want to play the game and we want to just kind of I guess expand that and develop it and, and again Harlequins would probably be a really good example of that recent change yeah, I think Alan uh, sums it up as well earlier when he talked about, you know, nothing wrong with box kicking, nothing wrong with mauling, um, right time, right place, etc. But also, you're going to play to your strength. You're going to play to the profile of your team. You're going to uh, play in a way that gives you the best chance of winning the game because at the end of the day, that is the objective. How you win is, is, is another part of that argument. And I just think that... Um, we come back to context again, it comes back to the players you have, the environment you create, what you do every day, every week, every month throughout a season. And generally how you prepare will, will reflect on how you play the game. Um, and I, I'm part of a coaching group and, and a club that have a very positive outlook on how the game should be played. Um, we need to improve in so many areas, but just as an outlook. Um, and it's, it's really clear. And it's well supported from top to bottom. And you're, at the moment, we're going through a tough period. But by staying true to yourselves, you hope you come out the other end. But um, yeah, for me, it's very much how you prepare to play the game. And that's the challenge again as, as, as a coaching group. I agree with you, Ian. You know, the, I, I, if I think back of my career, going right back and all the different teams I worked with, uh, I, I tried to do exactly the same that you are talking about now, that I, I knew where I wanted to go with, with the team. And I, I, I've got my philosophy about the game, but I have to adapt myself to the players that I, that I get. You know, when I arrived at London Scottish, this is all I had. When I arrived, the squad was, was uh, put together already. They were bought and I just had to come in and start coaching. So you have to adapt to what you've got. But, I always try to, to, to carry on in my coaching sessions uh, to keep on improving the players, to get them to where I think I can get them. Don't always get there. But a lot of the times I, uh, and I, I can remember with many of the teams, I get to a point, sometimes I'm into the third month already, and I get to a point where I actually start talking to myself and say, Alan Zondag, you must now stop doing this and just go back to something more conservative and just to win games. And then luckily, the other Alan Zondag says, says to this one, just stick it out. And then it's about a few weeks after that, it's like a light going, someone switching on a light and things just start happening. So I think what happens with a lot of coaches, they... They want to do something different and they want to, 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 to play a more holistic game. But you get in your coaching, you get to a point where you feel you're not going anywhere. And then you actually stop. And my advice to coaches are keep going. It's going to happen. It will happen. And I just want to refer back to uh, um, um, Phil, you, you asked about, you were talking about the All Blacks and I won't mention the, the All Black coach's name, which is a good friend of mine, but he said to me once, it's a, I asked him, you know, if you look at the Mitre Cup and you look at the All Blacks play, there's, a, there's an attitude of playing. And he, he said to me, it's, it's your attitude to playing. 
that you have to change. Um, so it's the mindset, the coach's mindsets have to change, but your whole attitude to how you want to play the game has to change. And if that doesn't change, it's not going to happen. It's one of the things that's, um, that attracted me to the school game is I have a, a philosophy, a, a belief in how I'd like the game to be played. Um, and I'm fortunate that I don't have to worry about, um, you know, are we going to get relegated? Do I need to, <laughs> you know, do I need to deliver a style that's going to ensure we win a higher percentage of games that we, than we lose? And Ian mentioned it about the framework thing. And I think this is, this is one of sort of the points in your article is that having a framework to play within is great as long as you empower the players who are actually on the field to make decisions based on what's in front of them. It's not about going through the motions. It's not saying and any map that you might have is to set up a particular picture on the, on the, but no map for me should extend to five, six phases. You must run here. You must run there. It doesn't allow you, for example, at set piece doesn't even allow you fluid, fluidity at your line out. So you can't even, you know, change your mind last minute who you're going to throw the ball to because suddenly that'll put your whole five phase map out of it so for me that that's that's just it's you know it's counterproductive but if you've got something that says right well this is how we're going to end up across the field after say one a strike play so one maybe two phases and then from that right you're all in position now you've got you make the decisions you call the space you choose how you're going to get the ball to space we also talk about right well that framework allows you to you know, hopefully control the, the constant game of cat and mouse between attack and defence to say, well, who's going to break first? Who's going to commit to something they shouldn't commit to and make my decision for me almost? You know, allow me to make a good decision because you've made a bad decision. Yeah, I think, Nick, um, or actually to, to kind of what both of you guys just said is, personally, I just don't see any other way other than being true to yourself. I think you have a philosophy you have values, you have beliefs uh, in, in in life in general, and, and rugby is no different. And I, I appreciate that um, <clears throat> pressure can do all sorts of things. And we've all like, been in a position where I've lost a job, been under pressure uh, to keep a job, uh, but you still have core values and you still have true beliefs that I think it's really important to stay true to yourself. Um, and I just think that a player, I think if you're doing your job as a coach, you know, you're creating an environment where players have to problem solve. They have to make a decision. They have to organize themselves. They have to organize others. Um, they're, they're able to uh, apply that reasoning to different contexts so they can find any way to win in a game. And then you involve that, or you have a collective understanding around that, that you develop that right across your team. And uh, a part of that, of course, is, de is developing their, own, their individual capacity, their individual skills, which is massive. But they're very hard things to coach and I mean, people take for granted, you know, how do you use questioning? How do you use feedback? How do you use modeling video footage? Um, you know, pressing pause in sessions, setting up scenarios and situations, but that's the most enjoyable part about coaching is that can you create an environment where those things develop um, and, and put players in a situation where they can just find a way to win um, by making good decisions on the pitch. So, Nick, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's trying to stay true to yourself regardless of whether you're a school coach, a club coach, or top or bottom end of a professional league. I think on Alan's point of the risk of stopping as well, for the, the only downside then to the school side of things is the risk of stopping and stagna it's stagnation rather than a lack of belief in what you're trying to achieve. And one of, for me, one of the benefits of 
refereeing, getting to travel sort of all over the country, is that I get to see so many different styles of play, different coaches in action. I'll spend my time whilst I'm trying to get this aging body warm and watching what teams do in the warm up. Not because I, I want some inside info and it's going to necessarily affect how I referee the game, but just you know, coaching ideas. It's almost a form of sort of constant and ever-changing CPD. I love that. Well, that's and it's and it's great. And I, I, I guess that's coach education and that CPD kind of piece is is maybe a, a follow up or a whole other discussion around actually what what that looks like and and the nature of that. With um, that's actually going to be part of my kind of master's project is the the transition of ex professional players into professional coaching because I think it's a it's a fascinating journey um, and there's there's probably a load of stuff that maybe hasn't been covered in enough detail or, or covered at all yet so um, yeah that'd be a great conversation but um, just to kind of wrap wrap this up I guess um, do you guys want to hit me with your top two um, kind of takeaways or wishes if if you were in charge of rugby what would you be immediately looking to adapt change influence in in any form of way what are what are maybe the two things that you think could have been the most impactful in in steering rugby in a positive direction um alan will come to you first put you on the spot there a little bit but what do you think i will definitely do something about them all definitely um and then the the other one is the tackle and the tackle what happens in the tackle area um i, f- I feel um, we can get rid of the uh, um, the chances of players maybe doing something wrong, like clearing in the wrong way or hitting heads. If we if we really sit down and work out what we want in the tackle situation, because um, I see it I see it every weekend. Uh, players still coming in from the side, players still taking people away that's not even near the ball. Uh, and nothing happens right in front of the referees. Um, and I think they must really sit down and, and, and work that out. It will change the whole game if that, if that part of the game uh, is sorted out. Uh, it, will, it will really change the game. No, I, I love that. And, and this is definitely my opportunity to say, I think we should bring back old school rucking because no one really stayed on the wrong side for too long if you were getting, you know, tap danced on for a, a, a little while. So, um, yeah, that, obviously that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I, I would be fascinated actually to what impact that would have. Um, from a safety element, I, I guess there's obviously big concerns in the, the picture that presents to the public. But, um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, Nick, as you said earlier, maybe it's the rose-tinted spectacles, but I, I don't remember um, rucks being quite as messy when... Uh, when you could move people with your feet so um cool nick we'll come to you what are your uh, what are your two kind of uh, wishes for the game there's that uh, there's that wonderful clip that's doing the rounds on social media at the moment i think is it between wales and england and you, the, the question that goes with the sort of 30 second clip which is just one ruck uh, yeah how, how many red cards would have been issued in? Uh, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm going to go a bit broader with my two things. I think the first one, I'm going to go right back to the first point about a sort of two, two-way thing of seeing more coaches, of which there are plenty now, but more coaches who are confident in their own beliefs of how rugby should be played and stick with it through thick and thin. And the other side of that coin is that more owners who are willing to back their coaches for a long period of time. I appreciate it's a money game, 
Okay, but it's self-defeating if you start changing coaches left, right, and center. You just end up in a in a vicious cycle, rather than a virtuous one. Yeah. Um, and the second point would be we, we've talked about players, coaches, and referees being involved in this symbiotic process. I think we're missing one element. I think we're missing spectators, fans. I think they have to buy into the game. All these efforts are to try to make the game better, particularly around the safety element. And it's no good having your social media reaction. It's no good having professional players disputing decisions which are supposedly they've been a part of the process. Um, I think more needs to be done to address it and to bring the fans along and say, look, stop looking back at the game. You know, is it the 1977 Barbarians against New Zealand? The famous, with the JPR Williams, is it the 77 with the JPR Williams try in the corner? Where the ball's in play for 26 minutes. There are 108 lineouts at which no one can jump. So the lineout's an absolute mess. It's a free for all. Um, versus you know recent Six Nations games uh, where the ball's in play for 44, 45 minutes. So I think that's the second point: is just trying to bring the spectators, the fans, along with the process, not as that fourth part, the fourth leg of the table. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Ian, finish us off. What are you saying? Oh, definitely Nick's first point. Yeah, owners looking after coaches with longer contracts. Thanks, Nick. That'll be. Uh, but we look. We look at the look again. We've. Geez, I, I know we all are almost cliched in terms of the All Blacks. Look at a coaching team that weren't successful, and then they went on to be one of the most successful coaching groups of all time. That, that's that's your case study, really. And I know it doesn't apply all the time. Um, I, I like the idea of collaborating across all the big decisions in the game. So the coaches, referees, uh, players. It was good to see in the framework around um, the issues with contact with the head that uh, Gregor Townsend, Dave Rennie, and uh, I think was was Richie Gray involved as well, and then a number of players. So that, that, that being very collaborative and getting those views and thinking it right through to the end to avoiding uh, as many of those unintended consequences as possible, that would be one. Um, the second one, is a little bit different and I just think if people are concerned about the game and Alan you've rightly brought up some some you know uh, excellent issues taken on as a challenge uh, as a coach I just see that as a challenge I see that as a responsibility to a certain degree to to be innovative to be creative to move the game forward we all love the game we've all been involved in the game probably since we, since we could run and I just think that's our responsibility to find ways to be to be innovative, you know, that entrepreneurial type of spirit where you're looking into the future and see where you want the game to go and staying true to yourself around how you create an environment to, to, to advance that and help that to happen. So, yes, there's issues. Of course there is. But how do we as coaches, I'm just talking about my own domain, is, is meet that challenge and rise to that challenge and take on that responsibility. Fantastic. What a great way to finish. Thank you very much, Ian. Really strong points. Um, Jen, so I'll round this up. I, I, I'll just start with a, a massive thank you for um, yeah your insights and your your open uh, you know openness and honesty um, for Alan for for writing the article in the first place. Um, as I say, the it started definitely got some interest and got a lot of people talking. And, and as Ian and, and all of you have kind of touched on there, I think carrying on these conversations and doing our best to, to influence in whatever way we can is is most definitely the way forward, even if, uh, yeah, the, the game as a whole doesn't necessarily agree on, on I guess, kind of one one answer. But then it, it wouldn't be the game we love if, if it was that simple and straightforward. So um, 
No, I really do appreciate it. Um, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions to a fascinating discussion. If you enjoyed this special and haven't checked out the other rugby uh, roundup, I'll start that one again. If you enjoyed this special and haven't checked out the other Roundup Radio episodes or any of the other quality podcasts from Rugby Coach Weekly, please head to the website and have a listen. I'd like to thank you again for listening. Wish you all the best and go well.